Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, think for a minute what it would be like to have to get up every day and fight. What I'm talking about is having to fight the state day in, day out to get that to which you and your family are legally entitled. I've spoken to dozens of people in that position and one of the first things that comes across is the sheer exhaustion endured. The other notable aspect to it is that they're doing it and continue to do it out of a sense of love, plain and simple. That love is for their children and the fight is to get those children the services that they're entitled to, the same services, principally education, that every child in the state gets. That's the lot of many parents who have children with disabilities. Despite having the law on their side and plenty of political platitudes thrown their way, the state still refuses to comply with the law as enacted by our parliament. One such parent is with me today. Miriam Kenny is chairperson of Involve Autism and she's a mother of a boy on the autistic spectrum. Miriam, you're very welcome to the podcast. Many thanks, Mick. Lovely to talk to you. Miriam, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but when I laid out there what was the impression I have got repeatedly when I've spoken to people, people in, in positions like yourself, um, I, I have that impression, as I say, that they, they get exhausted from the sheer effort of trying to get proper services and the proper education for their children. Yeah, I think it starts um, from very early on, uh, Mick, to be honest. So if your child is, you know, you, you've, you have some concerns about your child very early on or somebody's flagged something for you very early on, you really, um, you know, trust the system and think things are going to be, you know, you're going to be helped out there. You're going to go and maybe get the, to the health service, your child, if everything looks great on paper from the state's point of view. But when you actually go and try and access these services, access education, etc., becomes quite apparent that what's on the paper is not really what's happening in action. So that's very difficult for parents and it's a constant fight. And the word is fight and the word is battled. And the word is, I suppose, you feel by the end of the day embattled because you're constantly trying to get the right answer for your child. And what does everybody want for their child, no matter if their child has a disability, is the very best for their child. And you want your child to reach their potential. 
So at all times, that's all apparent with the child who has a disability wants to wants to accomplish, I suppose. So your first thing is around kind of the diagnostic process and then, um, you know, services and lack of services. And then you're also into the whole thing about the education and the educational landscape that you uh, discuss there. And I suppose with um, with an autistic child or anybody who is autistic, it's a lifelong uh, condition. It doesn't stop once a child, child becomes 18 or anything like that. So it's a lifetime of battling for lots of parents. So I suppose that's really, you know, does battle is the word, I think. OK, and Mary, if we were to take you back to the start, I mean, like your own situation with your son and, and obviously you'd know a lot of people through your work and in, involve autism. Um, when pe- the discovery that your child may have special needs, I mean, at that point, are we talking about perhaps two or three years of age or younger? So it all depends on the child. Every child is an individual. In our case, um, our child would have been kind of on the radar because he was actually premature. So he was always kind of kept an eye on. Um, but our child was diagnosed very early on. He was only two and a half when he was diagnosed. That doesn't happen for every child um, either. But so our child was very obvious that, that his needs were quite high at that stage. Yeah. And the thing I'm curious about is you, you discover that. And obviously, it's a very much a life changing scenario. But at that point, quite obviously, you know nothing about, presumably, about services. You just assume, as most of us would, that um, you just have to go and get these services because uh, legally every child's entitled to it. I suppose what you do first is somebody tells you, you know what you need to do now, you need to get an assessment of need done, right? So that's the first part of the process. So you say, oh, grand, I'll send off the form there and I'm going to get an assessment to need. And this really where things start to get very difficult because... Firstly, the government, I suppose, um, and legally is bound to do the assessment of need process. So the assessment of need is a process where, you know, you would be seen by uh, assessed by an occupational therapist, by um, a physiotherapist, by a speech and language therapist, psychology, etc. And then they would decide this child has this level of need and may also need maybe an autism assessment on side uh, on top of that. And that's the way it was done. So the thing about that is that you then hope that you are in a it depends on where postcode you're in as to when all of this happens and the length of time that um, that that actually happens. And there is a, you know, the specific time frame that the government has to deliver this. Right. Yeah. Just just to, just to touch on that, Miriam, the Disability Act 2005, there was a decision then that on the basis that particularly with a lot of disabilities, if uh, a child does not get the, the services or the treatment they require, their condition can worsen. And not only that, if they do get the services, it can make huge life changing um, changes for them on the basis they're getting treated at an early age. And in respect to that, the government decided to put into legislation, and it's highly unusual in any legislation that a time limit for something is put in, but on the basis that it was so important, they put in specifically that a child should be entitled within three months to have an assessment and apart from exceptional cases to have that assessment completed within another three months. So within six months of applying for an assessment, every parent should know exactly what services their child requires and what the condition uh, that their child uh, suffers from. Is that the real world? Well, 
what happens really is the assessment of need is one part of it. There's no point just providing an assessment to a child and, and not providing any services. And really, that's what's happening. So the obligation is on the state to um, actually do an assessment of need and actually diagnose the child. Right. But it does not. It's not legally bound to provide any services. So I would say uh, if background in health as well and education and no other service. Do you go to your doctor, say or somebody else and they say, right, I think you might be diabetic or epileptic or whatever. Uh, terribly sorry about that diagnosis. You will see you later. And his, that's really what's happening here, you know, because our children um, are not being seen. I was speaking to one mother um the other day and there's a 55 month waiting list for her child who's got very complex needs to be seen so it's not just about autism here autism is one thing there's children with very complex needs out here not being seen either um, and that's very difficult when you when you think about what those parents are under so you do an assessment of need in our, our situation again um, because the actual local um, HSC provider here um, wasn't in a position to do their own assessments it was outsourced to somebody else and in outsourcing it to somebody Somebody else. They really had no ownership over it. Um, the reports were done and they were sent out to us in the post. Um, I got reports in the post here and I was supposed to decipher through them and kind of understand them. So you can imagine getting a post, getting, you know, a diagnosis in the post. I mean, who else gets that every day of the week? They don't get that. Somebody actually sits down and says, look, this is what we found or this is what we think is, 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 is wrong with your child. And so let's try and discuss this and let's give you the emotional support behind that because it must be very difficult for you. Nothing. So we got it in the post. And then after that, we spent, I don't know, months and months and months and years trying to get our, our child services. Now, our story is the same as a number of people around the country, but is very interdependent on where you live as to what services are delivered. So you've got a situation you talked about early intervention there. Early intervention is key. And I suppose a lot of research has gone into that. And why is that key? Because it gives you the parents an opportunity or the guardians an opportunity to understand their child very well, but also can help with speech, can help with occupational therapy, things to do with sensory needs and things like that, particularly with an autistic child. Um, and, and you know, speech, OT, um, also physio, the child might need physio, psychological help. So it's a multidisciplinary approach is what is needed with a child with that level of complexity of need. And, you know, it, it's very dependent on the child what the level of need is. So if you don't have anybody overseeing that or not one person saying, you know, this is my caseload, this is my child, this is the child I need to follow up on, this is the child I need to liaise with the parents with, this is the care I need to give, this is about providing care. And if you don't provide and, and they're not providing care and there's no care for the family then and there's no care for the child really in that gap. So I think you can't, you know, I mean, there's lots of really brilliant people within the HSE. We're not saying that at all, but the system isn't child centric and they really need to start looking at the system. And I suppose the other thing is that recently um, the minister, um, Anne Rabbit, has recently yeah. put um, that there's a time limit on the assessment of needs and they're, and they're trying to go through the process. But I would argue that's fine. But where's the services? Doing diagnostics without providing a service doesn't make sense. Absolutely. But just touching briefly again on the actual assessment of need, I mean, and, and only for this reason, because as I say, it is specific in law, the time limit. Yet my experience and from what I gather from you, your experience is that most parents do not get that assessment within six months. No. Um, and 
that again depends on the child, depends on it depends on lots of things that happens. But I know there's been parents recently locally here as well that would have brought um, the HSE to court to try and get the assessments and needs done. And I think once, once we go into court, then the HSE reacts and says, we've got to get this done within a certain period of time. Um, is that to do with we want to do the right thing or is it because we're legally bound to do it? And, and, and that's what's happening at the moment. And our understanding is that some of the people that might be providing services um, are actually kind of quickly working through that process. And, and there's different um, kind of there's different areas of the HSE dealing with that differently, dependent on what their waiting list is. Even that, Miriam, the, the idea that, as you say, somebody you're, you're grappling with a scenario where you're trying to get services and education for your child and all that's involved in that and the fact that the services for most people aren't there. On top of that, as you say, some people then have to take on actually going to a solicitor, going into court, dealing with the whole apparatus to do with the courts, dealing also with the possibility that if they're not successful in the court, more financial hardship is heaped on them through costs. And even if they are successful, by the time they finally get the assessment, it's way beyond the, the, their initial application. And I, I, I think that's a vital point on the basis that because there's a specific law with a specific time scale there, it's completely being ignored by the state. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose they are trying to address it, and I can say that, and 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 it's it's complex to do that. But I think we need to move away from the fact that diagnosis is one thing, yeah, yeah. but providing support is That's the other. It, sorry, yeah, it's just so the, the first diagnostic step. Yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, it is, and and why, what do you need a diagnosis for now? You don't actually need a diagnosis anymore to receive supports in school. Yeah, but you do need a diagnosis. My understanding is that if you need to access things like. Um, I suppose, to get into the system of the HSE services, but also to access maybe early intervention for your child who um, is autistic in um, like an early intervention preschool. Also, if, if your child is autistic needs um, a special class or a special school, they need that diagnosis. So that's where this comes in as well for parents. You know what I mean? So there's changed again within the schools. You don't need the diagnosis unless your child needs those extra supports of a special school or a special class. And I think that's important important as well. So if you don't have that, then you can't access, you know, the proper educational side of things for your child um, very early on, you know. So there's 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 a lot around that and um, what what you need the diagnosis for. But I'll keep going. There's no point diagnosing a child yeah. unless you provide support. Okay, and we move on then to the services. As you say, the services are not there to a large extent. They're not integrated. And the other key element there is education. And we move then to a scenario whereby, like any parent approaching school going age, you're looking for a school for your child. Yeah, and I think what happens here then is, I think there's two, there's two things again. So most people in a local area, and we've loads of local schools around here, we have fantastic local schools around here. You're living in South Dublin, just to, just to point out. Yeah, you, yeah, we're in South Dublin, yeah. And and what you find is, I suppose, you'll hear parents talking about, you know, oh God, I got such and such into such a school and we're absolutely delighted by that. It was so stressful. And and you're listening to that and you're thinking, God, you yeah, know, that's very stressful, but um, actually, what am I going to do here now? So we would have parents that have applied to 30 schools for placement. 30. 30. So, but what's that about is this, is that there are lots of children, autistic children, who are very well able to um, manage and are very well supported in our mainstream schools. And we have fantastic SNAs and fantastic teachers. And I think that should be noted. And, and they manage well and, and it's, you know, within that environment. But there's a cohort of child who's recommended 
for a placement in a special class or a special school. And that's interdependent on the need of the child. And I think that's very important to say that again. So if you're in the situation, which might have happened to a few of us as well, is that firstly, you you hope that your child will be able to manage within that mainstream environment and their support. If you're lucky, they're supported very well. They have an, S, an SNA and they have resource hours and all that. And yet still with even within that, they're still not able to manage that. Then you have to that might be one instance why you might have to look at a special class. And that's happened to a number of our parents. Um, or else you could say the child is in an inappropriate placement from very early on because you can't find a special class for your child. So you say, look, do you know what? I'll send them to the local school and please God, it all works out. Um, and, and that's all I can do here. Or you say from very early on, I am definitely want this child needs to be in a special class. And off you go to about 30 schools all around Dublin. You hand in your report, you apply for a place and you hope for the very best. And what the thing is here is what happens with parents is what support do they get in that process? Very little as well, because if you go back to the state there, the, we're provided with um, a list of the schools and you're said, look, there you go. There's a list and off you go and try and find a place for your child. That's the support you get. And that is absolutely the only part of the support you get. So that's very difficult again. So you're trying to manage that all the time. And as a parent of any child with any level of need, you're very vulnerable because you don't have a choice. So you've no choice here. So you just have to go and say, look, whatever they I can get. And it's, I always say, you know, you're, you're, you're made to feel like you're lucky to get it. Um, and you should just that's fine. And you should be you should be delighted with yourself that you're after getting that place. And it, it shouldn't be like that. You know, these things, you know, you don't have to do that. And anybody else doesn't have to do that. Most people have a choice about where they send their child to school. And most people will want that choice. But we've no choice. And that is yeah. very difficult. And your child should be in a school that you're happy with, you know, again, and that you're working in partnership with and everything that goes with that for the best, you know, to the for the child to reach their full potential. I, I've heard stories, Miriam, of uh, some parents, uh, recall one in particular was that it was at um, a meeting, in fact, that organised by yourself um, of, of, of a, a parent and she opens her back window in her house and she can hear the kids in the local school out in the yard, all the usual sounds, playing, laughing and the whole thing. And her child, who's on the autism spectrum, realising she has to bring her child, I think it was 10 or 12 miles away, to the nearest school that they can't even integrate into the local community. In that respect, and back again to the law just briefly, as I understand, there's also a law, I think it's under the Education Act, that if there is perceived to be a demand in a particular area, a school is obliged to provide a special autism spectrum disorder unit um, in the school. Is that law followed through or is it similar to the Disability Act, whereby it isn't observed at all? So I, I think this is where this all started for us, very smallly. So, um, you know, we started off involved autism with with a few parents and then it kind of grew from that And when it, when school places became quite an issue. So in, we live in an area that, that, that there aren't school. Schools do not have special classes and historically never have had special classes. So what happens with our children in this area, Dublin 6, Dublin 6W, and also uh, parents in Dublin 4, is that children, and this happens to lots of children across South Dublin, I'm not just saying our own area, but particularly in our area because we have no classes. They are on a taxi or a bus every morning and they are bussed into other schools in other areas. And they would 
in turn are taking places of those children from that local community who should be attending their own schools. So when we started this off, I suppose the Education Act changed actually Section 8 in um, December 2018, where the 37A process was put in there. So saying that, you know, that schools had to meet the need in the in the local area and that the government could take um, actual measures, I suppose, to um, change that if, so, if an area wasn't willing to come forward to open special classes. And I suppose that's what recently has been in the news with the compulsion of 25 schools to open special class, classes in South Dublin. But what's happened in our area, unfortunately, is still we are the worst serve in the country. So if you're in your local community and there's a good few of us here that cannot go to our local school, you're not part of the local community. You're not part of the, you know, the local neighbours that are going in and out. You're, you meet everybody else. They all know each other. You're isolated and your child is isolated. And then if your child is on a bus every day going to school, you don't really have much interaction with that school because you're not visible there. You're not meeting somebody at the gates. You don't get to meet Nuala down the road. You don't you're not part of anything. And 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 that's been my own personal experience, um, you know, you know, to do with we, I'm, I'm lucky our child is in a fantastic local school, but um, but his needs have been met now by them opening a special class. But um, it, it is very difficult when you are not part of that um, or you feel that your child isn't part of that. So um. So it reference to that with the government coming forward, I suppose we have had a process and I can talk a little bit more about that. And what you heard about there at Involve Autism there was that that mum was talking about, she lives in South Dublin as well, that her other child is in that school. She's beside that school. It's a large Catholic school. They have no special class and they are not one of the schools that are compelled. So she's still in that situation there where her child is not able to go to the local school with his sibling because he needs a special class. Am I right that to a certain extent there's a postcode lottery there? You've that scenario in areas of South Dublin and I think you've it in areas of Cork City as well. Yes, and absolutely. And 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 this is both what we set up this before, because when we started off, um, like nobody kind of really asked why was there no special classes around? Um, and I suppose when you start off and then you think um, there mustn't be anybody else here who's autistic, then is that it? And then you set up a group and then people start saying, well, I'm here and I'm here. And actually in one estate here, there's three or four of us, you know what I mean? And, and whose children should be in the local school, but they're not able to attend. So um, and then so depend interdependent on area It's interdependent on things like it seems to be there seems to be more prevalence of special classes in desh schools. There seems to be more special classes in the Educate Together schools seem to be coming forward very much. But there is definitely an issue with our larger Catholic schools or well-established schools um, as to why they might or might not be setting up. And also that is prevalent in Cork. We've been contacted by people in Cork as well, maybe by setting up something similar about that, where they've got large areas in Cork as well. My understanding is without special class provision, both at primary and secondary level. And why do you think it is in some areas and not others, Miriam? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Um, so we've just gone through this process, you know, where the 37A process was um, 
commenced um, last year. When you say 37A process now, sorry, what are you referring to there? Uh, the 37A process is in the um, Education Act 2018, where schools, there is a legal process that the Minister for Education at the time can go through to actually um, call, um, I suppose, encourage or firstly schools to open classes. And then if that doesn't happen, can go through the legal process of actually compelling schools. And that would have happened in Dublin 15 initially. Um, and when there was a huge need to Dublin 15 there and we would have been out marching with parents from Dublin 15 there's a fantastic group in Dublin 12 as well we have a new group in Dublin 2 and Dublin 4 there's new there's parents there as well in, in that group there there's a national group called Enough is Enough so we were all outside campaigning very early on and it seems to be coincidental that this had happened so Dublin 15 was the first um, first time this happened was in Dublin 15 and then it's happened in our own in South Dublin. So when we started off this process, we just had wrote, wrote to a number of schools, 31 schools. We got very few replies and then we started politically lobbying. And in doing that, I suppose we came across some uh, like very compassionate uh, TD senators, etc., who really began to ask the same questions as us and, and have been very supportive of us. And, and we kind of respect that. And the 37A process then was commenced November this time last year by Joe McHugh. Um, and in doing that, they recognised that there was an issue in South Dublin that of class placements. And when we started this, they said there was no issue in South Dublin. But by the time we had finished, and not just ourselves, I said there's, a, there's other parents, and well, you know, to other groups as well, there, there was really found that there was a huge issue in, in South Dublin. So what he did was there was that they cast a wide net. There's 220 primary schools in South Dublin and the, that process was started. The problem is that you already, you have large er, certain areas as, as of South Dublin that never had classes. Um, and why would that be is what the question is. I mean, it's a historical thing, I think. Is there a reluctance in some schools or some types of schools to open a special unit, particularly for children on the autism spectrum? Yes, and we found that. So we would written again to another 58 schools again to see if they'd open it. So there is a reluctance. So what is that reluctance, reluctance about? So you can say lots of things. Firstly, it is, um, you know, there would be difficulty around, you know, working with the, the NCSE or concerns around that and about concerns about setting up a special class and for the, the schools not to get the right support. I mean, that's a real issue. It could also be the issue around these lots of established schools um, and established schools then, you know, mightn't have the space. We understand that too, totally understand that. But there is actually a lack of will as well to open them. So parents would have been told in our area that in, in Dublin 6 and Dublin 6W, like things like, um, would you not think about going down to such and such a school in a different area? They have a class. Would you not think about... Um, Maybe, uh, you know, I know somewhere else that might be good for you to go. And but parents are going, but, but why can't my child come here? Or why wouldn't you open a special class here? Or you might have been told this school is academic. You might be told this school um, is academic. So, or, yeah, yeah. It's called a soft barrier or something like if you say, well, what happens if, if my child isn't able to manage um, you know, in in the mainstream classroom, what happens to children like him? And they say, well, you know, they kind of move on. But where my 
question or our question would be, well, where do they move on to? And just in relation to that, it would strike me, Miriam, uh, we have the laws. I mean, we've mentioned two laws, the Disability Act in terms of getting an assessment, the Education Act in terms of schools being obliged to meet the needs in their areas. Yet it would seem the laws are simply not observed and which gives rise to the question, are they just there for window dressing? And beyond that, if that's the question, are we talking about societal attitudes in general that children with disabilities are not regarded as having needs and those needs need to be met within their own communities? I think there's a cultural shift that has to happen. I think historically with special needs, I mean, you know, it's it's a lot of children where are on buses, on taxis, being taxied and bussed out of their local area. And again, it's not just about autism, it's children with other needs that might need to do that because you don't have anything locally for the child that is a, the, the appropriate placement for them. I think um, in certain schools then, um, I mean, how, how can you change the culture? The child needs to be visible and our children have been invisible for too long. So people don't actually know they're actually there. And I think it's the whole thing of walking in my shoes. Unless you experience this, you're not going to know how difficult it is for any parent to find a place for their child or to not be part of their local school unless you're in that position. So to do with window dressing, I suppose a few positive things have happened. I suppose we've raised, I think a lot of parents have coming to, to the fore and we're raising, um, raising their voices now. As I said, there's groups in different areas, which is fantastic as well. And really beginning to kind of challenge the consciousness, I suppose, of people in general. And also you need to be part of the community. And if you're not part of the community as a child and your child's not part of the community as a child, what chance do they have as an adult? probably very little. So they need to be part of the community. The community needs to embrace them. And in embracing them, that means that they're part of the local school. Now, the local schools, I suppose the um, the Admissions Act has changed as well. There's new admissions um, policies have been introduced into all our schools now this year. So, you know, they can't can't discriminate on the grounds of a disability. As you said, they can't discriminate on the grounds of disability. But I get the impression that some of the parents you know have experience of scenarios whereby they're not openly discriminated against, yet it's conveyed in various ways that, as you said yourself, perhaps to be better going to some other school. Or you're, you don't approach the local school because a they don't have a special class. So they will say when you do go to a local school, which we didn't know the demand was here and because nobody came to ask us that. But that shouldn't be our job. The the people who are in the NCSE, we found, I suppose, when we were doing this, that the, the National Council of Special in ed Education, you know, it's about a da having data and being data driven and planning properly. Um, I suppose my understanding legally is that the school the, the, at, at present, the um, state only has to provide a place for your child. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the local community. But if you look at the UN Convention on um, Human Rights and Disabilities, my understanding is that it does have to be part of your included in your local community. So there's lots of things going on there. So the National Council of Special Education's lack of planning and lack, lack of data lack of having kind of accurate data, etc., has led, I think, a lot of them just saying, well, there's there is a place for your child. We actually there's a place for your child. We don't actually care where that place is. Um, and we're going to put that child on a bus out of their community 
And it's also going to cost the state a certain amount because they're going to be either in a taxi and a bus. And then that child also needs an escort. So we'll go from there's children crisscrossing the city all over the place, you know, from different areas all over over the city um, going to different schools. And in terms of addressing it, in the first instance, uh, in terms of legislation, as we've said, there is legislation in place. I don't know whether there's much more in terms of legislation that can be done. Beyond that, you're talking about the political will to ensure that that legislation is enforced. And are you? And then I presumably, on some level, you're talking about a cultural shift among all the stakeholders. Yeah, I think I think the political will is there now. We do have a new um, minister for special education, and that's the first time that's ever happened. So that's that's um, great to see that. Um, I think though that she's going to have to really take on that's um, Josepha Madigan. Madigan. Yes, she's really going to have to really look at some of the schools and see what their reluctance and will is about. Okay, so it could be, as I said, about the perceived lack of support from the NCSE, or maybe, um, and this, that's very concerning for the schools, or it's that cultural thing. Um, in our own instance, as we said again, what has happened is when that 37A process happened, 13, 14 schools actually came forward voluntarily to open um, classes. But again, it wasn't in our area. It was in those areas that are all, all, always very open to having classes and I had classes beforehand. And then the areas that have been compelled again, uh, some of them are those areas again. So you're back to the stage that, again, we have an area with 9,000 students in it between Dublin 6, 6W and also in Dublin 4. And there's also private schools there. It's nearly 11,000 children that there is, there's only 14 places for those children. Places, not classes, places. 14 places in an area with 11,000 school going children. Yeah, 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 yeah. Approximately 11,000 children. So, and so where do those children go is on a bus, you know, and where do they go is on a taxi. And where do those parents have to do? They have to go and look for those places for their children themselves. So it has to change. And I suppose we really want to call on the minister to look back at our area again and refocus on it and maybe go through a new process and to really see as to what those issues are that the, the, those schools didn't come forward. It's also very difficult for parents that see that there's been new extensions in, in um certain schools and certain parts, you know, of that area and also maybe new bills and there was no classes put in. So what is that about? So the minister did say yesterday or the day before that any new bills um and any new you know, any new extensions, etc., that they would have to have special classes in them. So that's very um good to hear that. So I do think things are beginning to move, but I think a lot has this has been due to the fact that parents have raised their voices and it's about empowering those parents to really begin to say, listen, this isn't good enough and it won't do and it has to be done better. But the schools need support, teachers need training um, and all the school community needs training for that to be able to happen. But and they also you can't is putting in a special class and not providing the supports like occupational therapy, speech therapy, etc. Um, you know, it isn't me. It's it's not meaningful without that either. And your child also has to be able to integrate back into the mainstream system and has to be enabled to do that. So there's no point having a special class if the child just stays in that class. They have to be able to move back and forth. And the other thing is we we have other parents who say their children are in a special a special class. And because 
their school locally set up a special class. What has happened is, is that lots of parents start sending their children to that school and that school becomes oversubscribed them with children with additional needs and they don't have the supports. And if they don't have the supports, the child in the special class isn't able to integrate back and forth. Um, and so the other thing that has changed is the um, SET, the special education teacher allocation model has changed as well. Um, and that's causing difficulty with newer schools and newer emerging schools. We also had a situation where we like it's all about the will as well of, of a principal and also the board of management. You know, do they want this in their school? We absolutely understand there's difficulties about it. And how do you move it forward? We had a parent last year who really was like, I can't even say the anguish he'd gone through trying to find uh, classes for his, 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 his sons. And he was walking around trying to find a place for his child to go into different schools and things like that. And came across a very willing pr principal who has really, you know, wanted, spoke about the fact that, you know, she is like so upset because parents are, trying and trying to get their child into their school because they feel that they're inclusive, etc. So if you're talking about from the state's point of view, we do have processes in place that have been instigated to kind of change the process and change what's going on. And that's positive. We do have a new minister for special education. That's positive. But we do still have large parts of South Dublin and in particular areas of Dublin 6, 6W and Dublin 4 that do not have the, the requirement of special classes that they should have. In um, nationally, I think it's one um, special class place for every 100 children. And in Ireland, in our area, we're seven times worse off than that. Do you know what I mean? So we really don't have anything. And there are other areas around the country as well in a similar scenario. I think it's something of a postcode lottery in that mm. respect. And absolutely. And again, we talked about a cork and I know that that's really is there as well. So it is a postcode lottery. But why should you be penalised for where you happen to have a house? Why should your child be penalised? And, and we're talking about large primary schools now. We're not talking about small primary schools. We're talking about large primary schools um, and also, I suppose the thing is around the patronage of those um, schools as well and, and really begin to talk to them and work working with them. So for me, you know, education is key for any child. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. You should be able to access, you know, exemplary education because that is every child's future. And it is also something that every child is entitled to in the state. So I think that's the really important thing. We have fantastic schools, um, but unfortunately there is some reluctance and there continues to be reluctance to open to classes. And it's terrible to think that I actually had to go through a process to get schools compelled to open these classes, Do you know. So you don't want that. And as a parent, you don't want that. You want to be working in partnership with your school. You don't, you want your your child and you to have a good relationship with the school. You don't want to be, you know, seen to be the person who's always asking for something, etc. You want the very best for your child. And that's all this is about. But if 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 the state helped those parents out much better, they wouldn't be feeling like this. They wouldn't feel like that they need to be out marching. They wouldn't they wouldn't need to have done this if the right planning had happened and if the acknowledgement was there that these issues existed and continue to exist. I mean, there's people all over the country, as you rightly said, on their children in, in one county going to another county and all that kind of thing. And some areas, dependent on where you are, are worse than others, worse served. 
But then, you know, and then, but to come back to South Dublin, the worst serve areas are the areas I just spoke about, 6, 6W and 4 now as, as a result of the process. So what is that about? And I think the minister has said quite categorically that, you know, where there is a reluctance, she's going to act on it. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And it'll be, I think it's definitely something that requires to be out there in the public square because one of the things is if we're going to have a cultural shift, I think people need to be made more aware of how people's rights are simply being trampled on to a large extent in that respect. Miriam Kenny, Chairperson of Involve Autism, thank you very much for speaking to us today. That's it, folks. I'd like to thank JJ Vernon on sound. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on all the usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.